Alright, we are uh, in chapter 17 of the book, but before we move on, um, were there any other questions? <laughs> any other questions that uh, we had in regards to chapter 16 or just questions in general? Um, I assume Wednesday night went well. I mean, you're all still here. No one seems angry. Uh, oh, have you? <laughs> Bring it, Tony. <laughs> Um, what kind of questions or, or, or overall thoughts obviously we spent we spent two, two lessons trying to talk practical um, how do we apply and that's really what I want to do for today okay we talked about this for a whole quarter how, how do we apply this what does it mean so what now what do we do with this We talk about the importance of relationship and not taking that for granted, making sure that we that if we uh, truly have a relationship found, uh, founded on Jesus, uh, that that will that will guide us in how we we live. It's not it's not going to be um, my will but His will. Right, right. And uh, to that. Uh, that we talked about considering if there are any that maybe we might consider not to have as close of relationship with the body here to where you, if there were a problem and you looked back and you might say oh you know we, we didn't have the fellowship that we should have had with each other I wish we could have done that differently to, to take action on that now. Right. Right. Really, I, I hope that's what this, this lesson will be, that this lesson and Wednesday, is what can we all do now? Knowing what we know, studying what we've studied, uh, where are we in this journey? Are, are we one of those who've recognized, look, I, I have not developed the kind of relationship with my brothers and sisters that I ought to. I, I can take these kinds of steps in my life to start doing that better. Maybe we're in situations where we have family members who, who are straying. What can I do? How, what can my, my approach be? Um, what, kind of, what kind of mindset should I have? Maybe that I haven't had the proper mindset towards this individual. Um, you know, uh, we as members uh, or as parents, as elders, there, there, there's going to be different applications for us knowing what we know now. Um, and so I, I can't get up here and, and explain exactly how it's going to look like in, in Tony's life, in Karen's life, in my life. But what we can do is say what it's supposed to be. What's the objective? What's the goal for all of us? What are we trying to accomplish? Try to have better relationships with our brothers and sisters. I agree, but is that the goal? Holiness. I want to have a good, yes. Holiness. Holiness. That's a byproduct of if we do this right, if we have the right kind of relationship with God, we are both going towards the same objective. Our relationships will get closer. Um, I mean, it's starting to sound like First John, you know. With you say you have a relationship with God, but don't walk in the light. Oh, I mean, it's all those kind yes. of things that are connected together. So absolutely. Well, I thought that part was just 
and wrote some of those up there. <laughs> What's that, Gary? I thought that part was just It was as obvious. I'm sorry. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so let's... I do just want to address a couple of parts of the questions that he asked um, in the last lesson. Um, I, I listened to Wednesday. I honestly don't recall if, if we addressed it on Sunday. Um, uh, question number five, which is on page 205. He says, the question is, if someone withdraws their membership to avoid being disciplined by the church, is there anything left for the church to do, or does the individual's withdrawal, withdrawal, withdrawal? end the matter? Um, if they know they're living in a way they shouldn't, they know that the proper response of the congregation of the church there is to admonish them, and they don't want to be admonished. They know withdrawal is coming. They know a change of fellowship is coming, and they just say, okay, just take, take us out of the directory. I, I see the punishment coming, so I'm, I'm, I'm out. Is there anything left for the congregation to do? Um, he made a comment on page 206, um, that second paragraph, he says, even in situations where someone knows that disciplinary action is imminent and withdraws their, their membership to head it off, the church still needs to follow through so that members will know the offender's true status with the congregation. Otherwise, they may continue to associate freely with someone with whom they should not. Um, he makes a comment, in such cases, the announcement to the church would be different than in a situation involving a current member, but it should be done nonetheless. It could simply be stated that the person has chosen to withdraw their membership rather than face the discipline of the church. In such cases, there would be no need to specify the nature of the sin, since to do so would accomplish nothing and might involve a violation of privacy laws. Did we discuss this? John's shaking his head, smiling a little bit. I'm curious to know your thoughts on that particular paragraph. Well, we've had that happen here. Have you? We did. And you know, you, you read that scenario, and I, I, I immediately start thinking, oh, somebody's playing games here to avoid the inevitable. They, they play their, well, I'm not a member here anymore. It's like mm -hmm. that's playing games, and I, I, mean, I agree with what he said. We, the church, should do what the church should do, uh, whether they at the eleventh hour. All of a sudden, pull back their their membership. It's like, well, that's not the way that works. You don't become a member by just saying, "Well, I'm a member," and you can't just necessarily say, "Well, I'm not a member anymore," and, and avoid all consequences of your behavior. So, are there are there potential consequences with privacy and lawsuits and all that? There always are, and that should not keep us from doing what's right looking out for their soul and the, 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 what the congregation needs to then do in order to help restore that person. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm not necessarily aware of, of what happened here, um, but I've, I've seen this firsthand. I've seen this firsthand. Um, what, what are some potential destructive things that could occur if we simply leave, leave that. So they say, like, I'm living in sin. Maybe some of the group knows it. It sounds like here he's implying that not all of the group knows it. 
and they just say, okay, before you're going to publicly make that known, I'm out. Maybe they even move away. What's the danger of them doing nothing? And maybe I'm leading that question. What would be the result of doing nothing, Gary? They start going to other, con- <clears throat> other congregations and bad-mouthing the one that they left, saying there's all kinds of problems there, and they're treating me unfairly, and, and if the other congregations haven't heard anything, like, you know, beware of Brother So-and-so, he's been marked for A, B, and C. Right. They could, they could start potentially uh, slandering the, the congregation they were previously a part of. Consider depending on what sin they're involved in. What if, what if they are involved in sin that is destructive and disruptive, divisive among this group, and before they're disciplined, they go to another group and demonstrate that same kind of attitude and behavior? We're not helping that brother by not, or sister, by, by not trying to address, look, your, your behavior is divisive and it's, it's harmful to people. If we just let it go, we're we're potentially allowing other brothers and sisters to come to harm. Right? Now, and churches are autonomous. We, we don't have, you know, elders don't have the, the authority to make decisions for other congregations. But if we know that someone's behavior, they're simply carrying it with them over there, and we're not going to that person who is our brother or sister and saying, can, can we talk about this? Can we study this? The, your behavior is, is harmful and hurtful. Um, I think the the issue I took mostly with this paragraph was that um, he he recommends that the church should be made aware of what has happened and says that it could be stated that this person has withdrawn their membership rather than face discipline of the church, but that we don't necessarily need to tell the church what the problem was. Um, For fear of What's his primary concern here? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the person might sue the church. Is that really the thing that should be dri- driving our decision as to how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ? That the government might step in and... Now, let's be thoughtful. Let's show wisdom and discernment. But I should, we should, be more concerned about the health of the congregation and what it would mean to do nothing what it would mean to leave more questions than answers than whether or not the government might come in and you know, uh, do a lawsuit. I can say from personal experience, because I've seen this happen twice with two different individuals, where they go, they leave, nothing's done, and the majority of the congregation doesn't know why they left, and it's left generic enough that the person who has left has their own version of the events. And then some may have their version. And so it turns into a their, their word against ours, slander. and it, it is not helpful. It's not helpful to them, and it's not helpful to the congregation that, that's left. Karen? You know, there may be some wisdom in not telling all the details. Sure. I think one of the challenges when you are part of a group where it's not understood by the group, it's really easy to criticize. And two years down the line, you know, six months down the line, whatever, um, the, the members of the congregation who are not well-informed, it would be really easy to say, 
yeah, I don't know if we should have done that, you know, and they're making exceptions for this person where they don't have all the facts and so they're able to um, rationalize some things probably just out of ignorance. Whereas when we clearly understand this is what God expects his church to be, this is our stance um, in working towards holiness, this is why this person is no longer serving the Lord as they should, then we have a clear idea of, okay, how can I help that person be restored yes. versus making exceptions for them and criticizing the church for yes. something that we don't hold. And understand, I'm not advocating that we air you know, their dirty laundry in front of everyone. We're doing this to embarrass them, and we want to make sure that everyone knows what an awful person they are. No. The goal is restoration. How can we go to that brother or sister and try and restore them if, if we don't even know what we're encouraging them to change in their life? Now, do we need all the juicy details? No, usually not. But we need enough to, to be able to go to that person and, and, and try and help them. Or at least to uh, protect the rest of the congregation. Correct, <laughs> correct. And again, we need to show wisdom and discernment. <clears throat> this is not the time to, to go on social media and set the record straight so that everyone knows that can be just as damaging and destructive. That is that really serving the per, the, the person, um, Mike? Yeah, when I think it was poorly worded, and I, maybe he means exactly what he says. But when he says no need to specify the nature of the sin, I think the nature of the sin should be specified. But I think the specifics doesn't don't they don't always necessarily have to be. Sure. Know? When I think of um, an adulterous situation, right? Where you could say he's been caught up in adultery and there's the nature of the sin. I think that's there's nothing wrong with that. But then to go and say he was found in a hotel room with this woman from the community, now you're opening yourself up to a potential lawsuit that he's talking about when you're bringing in someone that's not even a member of the church, right? Um, by, by potentially defaming them. And so I think in a situation like that, it does make sense, but the nature of the sin can definitely be stated without, I think, in, you know, break, opening yourself up to potential issue, whether you're concerned about that or not. Sure, because I need to know: Am I coming to you to talk to you about your greed, or am I coming to you to talk to you about your deception, or or your adultery, or you know? Uh, but how effective am I really going to be if I go to you and say, I, "I've been told that you're sinning, and I'm here to encourage you not to." You know, um, but you're right. I I don't need to know the the back and forth. Um, um, and I certainly should not. He, he actually says so. I want to give the author credit. In the next chapter, he, he does say so, that we should not be driven primarily by what the government may do to us. Um, I just, uh, I, I questioned exactly how he, he specified and that. And this was brought up because of a specific case. I think it was down in Texas. Was it in Texas? He did mention yeah. that in the notes. Um, um, yeah, there was a major, major lawsuit against right. the Church of Christ down there because of disciplinary action that was taken. Right. Um, and, and, and I feel like the, the, answer, uh, it, the answer becomes more clear when, when he answers question number 7 on page 209. When telling it to the church, must the offender's sin be specified, or is it sufficiently simple to say, uh, simply to say that the person has sinned? And I, I felt like his, his answer to that was... Was, was helpful in, in potentially clarifying. Um, let's, let's read a couple of passages here that I've, I've put up on the board. Um, 
Some of them we're familiar with. I'm not going to read again, but 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, this is the situation where the man was, was caught in uh, adultery um, with his father's wife. And, and we've read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, um, it seems to be discussing this man that, that he then um, he then returned. He repented. And, and what was the church's responsibility when this person came back? What were they supposed to do? Comfort and confirm their love. Right. Don't keep... Don't keep pushing him away. He clearly has repented. He, he wants to be restored. And, and you need to... Um, it says in verse 7 of chapter 2, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So they need to reaffirm their love for him. It's what we know God has promised to do with us when we return to him. He doesn't say, oh no, you need to stay, you need to stay back for a while. That was so bad. No, when we truly come and confess our sins to him, when we repent and, and we show godly sorrow, uh, God, is, God is quick to forgive. There is a passage later on in 2 Corinthians that I do want us to read. 2 Corinthians 7. Did I write this up here? Yeah. I did. 7 verses 9 through 13. You know, Paul didn't just write these letters so that certain members there would behave themselves or do certain things. But, but he had things he wanted the church as a whole to do. Things that they were not acting appropriately in. And uh, he recognized, Paul did, that, that that letter, what we call 1 Corinthians, um, produced in them some sorrow. It, it hurt them to read it. It was not an easy thing to hear from Paul. Um, he had some hard things to say. But he says in verse 9, um, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what eagerness, I'm sorry, what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. What, what is discipline meant to produce? What was Paul's objective by writing this hard letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. What did he expect to see in them? Well, the, uh, like verse 10, that when there's sin pointed out, that there's a sorrow that produces repentance leading to salvation, and then it, it ought... A reaction to sin, verse 11, ought to be, you know, this godly sorrow that produces uh, vindication, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, avenging of wrong. All the things we've talked about for holiness and restoration. Yeah. So what would you say, what, 
what does repentance look like? And, and why I'm asking these questions, I, I think, is pertinent to our chapter today. What does repentance look like? Three things usually come to mind when I think of repentance. It recognizes the wrong that has been done. Recognizes the hurt that it has caused. Hurt God, hurt fellow man. Um, and it is a determination to make changes to do better. It's not, it's not a vow to be perfect from here on out, but it is a determination of the heart, a change of heart to, to change. Yeah. I chose these passages and these questions because um, uh, I'm familiar with a, a situation that's, that's ongoing right now where someone came before the church, they had been caught in sin, they hadn't volunteered it, but they had, uh, they had been caught in it, and came before the congregation and acknowledged what the thing was. W- without fully acknowledging the sinful nature of it, or or making any kind of indication that there would be change. It was just, this is hard. This is something I've been dealing with my whole life. And it's hard, but there wasn't any, this is wrong, this is sinful, this is what I'm, I'm trying to do, I need help from you all to... It was just, okay, you, you caught me, here it is. Um, we can't judge people's hearts. Only God can do that. Jesus can do that. All we can do is what Paul was able to do here. Um, What does repentance look like? It looks like someone who recognizes they feel godly grief. Not, Not grief that they got caught, but grief that they have hurt God. Grief that their choices have have dishonored him, grief of, as often sin does, grief that it hurt other people. Um, And then there's this verse 11, there are these things that because I've recognized the harm I've done to God and to others, these are the things that I just feel compelled to do. I'm trying to, in, in, in my failed attempts, to make this right. Uh, I read from the ESV. Does anyone else have, have different translations? Verse 11 specifically. Oh, yeah, I'm reading from the New American. New American. And, and yours was similar. Yeah. Um, instead of punishment, mine said that, that last point. After zeal, it says what? Uh, avenging of wrong? Yeah, that's what mine said. Okay. What avenging of wrong? What's that? Vindication. Vindication. Craig, so I, I have a note. Somebody res- described it this way. Now, pendulum swings a lot of times, you know, are not viewed as positive. But in this case, repentance is uh, a pendulum swing, and not just swinging it from away from sin back to neutral, but actually swinging it all the way to the other extreme, to where you're now doing what is right. Yeah, yeah. It's not a slight course correction. That's not what re- re- repentance is, right? It is a, I'm going down this path, and this is the wrong path. I need to turn around. Right? And so, as we've read this book, there is the temptation for us to think about those sinful people that need discipline. 
But I think the author has done an exceptional job of, we need, we need to look at ourselves. Have, have I been behaving the way that Christ wants me to behave in my interaction with these people? Have I had a Christ-like attitude towards those in sin? Have I been bitter? Have I been judgmental? Have I been um, unwilling to forgive? And if I see in myself things that are not Christ-like, I need to have the kind of repentant heart that, that goes, okay, th- this has got to change. Um, I've got I've to do, do my best to beg God for the strength and the zeal to, to, to make a change in my life. Um, he says, what longing, what zeal, what fervor, what, what energy exerted. Not to say that, that I will of my own strength set, set the scales right again. Um, but it is not the idea of I stand up, I acknowledge, okay, I've done sin, and then God's going to set this right. No, I, God expects me to produce the fruit of righteousness, right? I need to, um, I need to show my, re- my repentance. Um, at every point, he says, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Um, that's what the fruit of the Spirit means, right? We are bearing fruit in our lives that look a certain way. Um, it, it should look like should look like Christ. Great. Yes. Yeah. One more thought. You you mentioned and rightfully so that we are not to judge people's hearts. We can't judge people's hearts. But at the same time, Jesus said, "You shall know them by their fruits." You just brought that up again in, in the side of repentance. Right. But people always have a general response of one or two, like when Peter was preaching his first sermon and when the people found out that they were guilty of crucifying the Christ those that's hearts were pricked they said oh my what what shall we do and the other the other half were were probably angry ticked off from one degree to another it's that's been a common response throughout time they're either sorrowful or they're angry and so if if they respond on the angry side or the non-repentant side that, that should be a red flag for us you know, just like a lenient judge keeps letting this, this kid off, it's got a rap sheet as long as his arm keeps letting him off, keeps letting him off. We can't judge his heart. He's, he's, he's trying, he's struggling until he kills somebody. You know, the, the, red, the, the warning signs are there. You can't just let unrepentance. Well, like I said, I guess we need to be mindful of it and, and cognizant of it and not just say, well, he's... He's young and he's, he's a guy and you know he'll outgrow it, but he just keeps continual sinning until something really bad happens. Right, and I'm always I'm always hesitant to throw around that word judgmental and judge. I think it's been abused. Um, it's one of the world's favorite passages that tell us not to judge. Right. The truth is, I don't get to judge you, which means I don't get to cast final judgment on you. That's not my job. I'm, I'm so thankful that's not my job. But if we use the word judge to mean I, I am allowed, in fact, I'm commanded to discern the behavior of others. Is it in line with Christ or is it not? I need to use judgment. I need to use discernment. We, we are not only encouraged to do that, we are commanded to do that. This, this whole discussion of church discipline is impossible if we're not permitted to, commanded to discern um, but you, you are right. We need to be, we need to treat 
those who choose to continue in sin in an unrepentant fashion in the same way that God does. How does God treat those in sin? He loves. He does love. And don't ever forget it. That doesn't stop. A, a unloving God would say, you do what you want. I don't care. Knock yourself out. No, 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 no. God never stops loving that individual. But he does separate himself from you. But not at first. And so that's what we've got, that's what we've got to that's what we've got to to remind ourselves of. God is a God who has in various ways throughout the Bible, and we can't ignore this fact, cast judgment on unrepentant sinners. We we can't get around that. Sodom and Gomorrah and Korah and uh, Nadab and Abihu and the list goes on and on. But God, when he describes himself to Moses, he is a God who is full of loving kindness and long-suffering and mercy and patience. He is a God of truth. He's a God of holiness, but he's a God of compassion. And so how do we, how should we treat sinners? We need to treat them the same way that God treated us. Because <laughs> we need to be careful that we're not putting sinners over here and us over here. Right? How I'm did saying, God treat us? I guess what I'm saying, Craig, was more of we need to be as gentle as, serp- gentle as doves, but as wise as serpents. Yes. I mean, yes. We, we, know, we know of a situation where there was a young man who had the, the rap sheet as long as his arm involving sinful situations, drugs, alcohol, the whole nine yards, womanizing. Brethren kept taking him in, kept taking him in until he wore his welcome out. One family took him in. He ended up having sexual relations with their daughter. And they had been warned, you know, that he was sinning and they didn't want to do anything to bring disparagement upon him. They didn't do any kind of corrective discipline to him at all until this guy found out that he was sleeping with his daughter. Kicked him out of his house. He went to another guy's house in the church who had a similar age daughter. Didn't say anything to him because he didn't want to reveal that. Yeah, that's a lack of wisdom. That's a lack of discernment. And that's not doing what Hebrews 12 tells us a loving father does, right? A loving father disciplines. In fact, it proves his love to his child. It, it says in uh, Hebrews 12, and we've read this numerous times in the, in the class, um, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It's a rhetorical question. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. God doesn't do that for us. God doesn't say, I see you in your sin, I see it's harmful to you and harmful to others, and I'm going to leave you to it because I'm compassionate. God makes so many opportunities available to us so that we can, uh, those who have the heart to receive it, can hear his word, know his word, and respond to his word. But you are right. There does come a time, and it's up to God. It's not up to me. But Hebrews 10 does say, Hebrews 10.26, that if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's nothing else God can offer to us. And that offer, I mean, the sacrifice for sins, we're talking about Jesus. Like, that's as good as it gets. That's amazing. That was a you know, multiple millennia plan that God carried out 
to perfection and offered that to us. But if we look at that and go on sinning deliberately, God, God doesn't have anything else He can offer to us. What is left then is a, a fearful expectation of judgment. It's not my judgment against you. It's, it's God's judgment because He's a holy God. And so I'm not saying all of this to, to, to make us cringe, to, to make us afraid of God in the sense of that's the only attribute of His that we should be talking about. No, no, no. Sin should make us fearful. But the good news of the gospel is that God says, I've, I've offered you something, my son and his blood and the forgiveness that that, that, that provides us. I've offered you something uh, that that helps us need not be afraid of sin or of death anymore um, as, as we produce the, the fruit um, of righteousness in our lives. Um, God wants, as, as we're here in, in Hebrews 12, kind of asking the same question that we asked uh, in that, that passage in 2 Corinthians, what does he want discipline to produce in us? Specifically, in verses 10 and 11, uh, of, of Hebrews 12. We've read this passage before. But what does God want repentance, what does God want uh, discipline to produce in us? Holiness. holiness. Whose? Okay. His holiness. And as much as God no doubt wishes he could, <laughs> that he could just program us to live like him, he, he can't we have free will. He's given that to us. But he, in his love and long-suffering and compassion, disciplines us on occasion so that we will be prompted to choose to live as, as he wants us to live in his holiness so that it will yield what in verse 11? Kind of using this, this fruit analogy, yielding and... What's that? The fruit of righteousness. Right living. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's right. Peaceful fruit yet, of righteousness. Peace by the forgiveness of our sins. I mean, yes. That brings a lot of peace to our lives. It brings a lot of peace to our lives, like you said, by not not being afraid of sin. You know, um, not being afraid of what, or, or even wanting it. You know, looking at that guy and thinking, you know, he lives in sin, but look at how good he's doing, or whatever maybe that we're envious of. It, it doesn't bring that to us. It gives us peace, understanding mm. that that guy, his life might look good, but he doesn't have the peace that I have. Right. And what looks good doesn't necessarily mean it is good either, even if it's a show, could be a showy thing. Yeah. God, God knows that what the world offers to us is not going to satisfy. It's not going to fulfill. It's not going to bring us peace. It may seem like that from the outside. But what will bring us peace is a fellowship with him in his, in his holiness. Um, so I'm, I'm going off script here a, a bit, um, but I, I would rather go off script in here than off script in here. Um, Craig? Yeah, Mike. To a point in verse 11, I think it's also important to know that, um, and I've just really kind of started to notice this, but at the end of verse 11 it says, to those who have been trained by it, so to me, that indicates that we, can, we are still to do our part. We're still to discipline. We're still to accept discipline. But it's not going to produce this unless our hearts are willing to be trained by it. Right. And so um, 
you know, I, I think sometimes we think, well, you know, discipline doesn't work, so I'm not going to do it, right? No, discipline will work, but our, our part is to either discipline or to receive the discipline, and then if we're, um, if we're disciplining, I cannot control the other person's heart, whether they'll be trained by it. If I'm being disciplined, then it's up to me to control my heart to be trained by it. Right. Right. I mean, we've, we've been going through, um, you know, reading through the, the Old Testament throughout this year, um, reading some minor prophets that I haven't read in a good long while. And I think it's been, it's been good. Um, death and destruction. Death and destruction, <laughs> but not just uh, as as I thought for a good long while. Mostly Israel and Judah. No, he's he's talking to Edom and Egypt and yeah. Moab and like everybody in between. God doesn't want to see his his people, his humans that he's created in his own image, live and, and act in in this way. And sometimes he's willing to punish them and and hurt them so that he can heal them. And sometimes God's people respond well and have the hearts to receive it. And sometimes, what does discipline do to those who don't want to receive it? Oh, it just hardens them even. You know, they, they despise God for that. Let us not be that, that kind of recipient. Let us not, um, you know, what child has not received a spanking and told their parents, didn't hurt. <laughs> Um, I learned that by observing a friend of mine. He told the story and was like, well, that was, that was dumb. <laughs> that is not a heart that's, that received discipline well, but we ought to. And so for this class, for this class, where are we? What, where do we see ourselves? Are we those, if, if we're looking honestly, are living with sin in our lives that is unrepentant and needs to be corrected are we willing to make the changes and have that kind of godly repentance that we've read about and demonstrate it with that kind of fruit? Are we those who um, God has given us the, the role and responsibility where we see a brother or, or a sister in need of help and, and we see them making decisions in their life that are going to, to result in their ruin and for too long we haven't done anything? Well, we need to repent of that. We need to change that and then do something. Are we those? And I, I think, Gary, you said um, that, uh, that there are kind of two responses. I think there's a third response sometimes, and sometimes it's just indifference, which I think is, is potentially even worse, where we see a problem, and for a variety of reasons, and I think our culture has gotten really good at coming up with reasons why I shouldn't poke my nose in other people's business. And so we just leave, leave it as is. We leave someone drowning. And we've convinced ourselves that it's, it's you know, let them do them, let them follow their own heart. Um, who am I to cast judgment on another as that person drowns? Um, may, may that not be. Um, let, let's read a couple more passages, and, and if, we have, if we have time, we'll blend it into Wednesday. Uh, let's go over to 1 John, because I think, Tony, you mentioned it. So good. First John, let's read first uh, verses 5 through 10. Would someone uh, read that for me? First John 1, 5 through 10. 
This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our Oh, sorry. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This has been a class about fellowship. Right? And that word is used several times in this passage. Fellowship with one another. Fellowship with God. How do we have those things? How do we achieve and maintain those things according to this passage? Walk in the light. Walk in the light. So it says in verse, I'm sorry, 7, that if we walk in the light, and what does that mean? Well, read the rest of the letter, uh, read the rest of the, the New Testament, but walk in the light as he is in the light. We need to do as he does. We need to have the same kind of objectives and thoughts and actions as he does, as Christ does, as God does. Then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. But verse 6 says that we can't have fellowship with God if, if we're walking in darkness, right? We, we see who God is and what God does and, and, and the holiness of God, but we choose to live a different way. Well, we've, uh, we, we can't have fellowship with, with God in darkness. He's not in darkness. We can't have fellowship with each other over there. That, that's not the thing that binds us together. But it's by walking in the light, following Him, doing as He does, um, acting as, as, as He is, fulfilling our purpose of being created in his, in his image for good works, that we have fellowship with one another. But there are several if statements in this passage. There are several ifs. This is, this is conditional. It's based on our choices. We get to choose. What are some of the if statements in this passage that we need to be mindful of. Verse 6 maybe speaks to hypocrisy if we say one thing and yet do another. Right. So we may say outwardly, hey, I have fellowship with God. Right? God and I, we are on the same team. You know, I am His. But we live in a way that is not according to God. It's, it's darkness. And not light. Well, yeah. Then, then it, it, hypocrisy has a, is a great word to describe it. It says we lie. It seems we lie to others and do not practice the truth. There's a, a good, a positive if statement that we just talked about in verse seven. If instead of lying about our position, if instead we walk in the light, we do have fellowship, and we have the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us of our sins. Right. But if, in verse 8, we say we have no sin, who are we lying to? Ourselves. 
Self-deception is a very real, very subtle sin. Sometimes we tell ourselves things so often and so much, we, we genuinely believe it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But there's a, there's a positive if right after that. Because boy, if verse 8 was it, what a miserable state we would be in. God says, you are sinful. And if you think otherwise, you're lying to yourself. But what? Verse 9, if we do what? If we confess our sins, if we make them known, if we acknowledge what they truly are to God, they are an affront to Him. Sin is a destructive force. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is good news. That is good news. But it requires of us to actually acknowledge our state before him. To be honest with ourselves and with others where we stand. And when we see in our lives things that are contrary to him, confessing those things. Acting as the Corinthians acted in Second Corinthians. Then saying, okay, wow, I see what I've done. This, this is what I've got to do to make this right. Um, this, is, this is what God expects of me. Not that I'm going to make it right all on my own, um, but God expects us to treat it as serious as, as he does. Um, let me read just a couple of quick pages. We're, we're going to bleed into Wednesday, and that's okay. Um, I'm sorry. Yes. Um, I, like, or I like the images of what needs to be in us in this passage, where we're walking in the light, um, that we don't want darkness in us. Um, it makes this these statements about the truth being in us, um, mm-hmm. that um, that His Word is in us. Um, you know, we're not saying that there is never sin in us, but if there is, but we have light and truth and um, His Word in us, then we're going to get that sin out. We don't want that sin in us. We're not saying that that never happens, but we can confess that, um, we can get that out because it is not consistent with the light that we are trying to walk in. Right. Um, on page 228, I know there were a few hands, and, and please keep in mind those questions. We'll, we'll talk about them on Wednesday. But on page 228, it says, Make holiness our priority. To both Israel and the church, God has said, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Our behavior is to reflect in every way the character and nature of God, the Holy One of Israel. The bottom line of discipline is whether or not we are serious about pleasing God and reflecting His character in our own. To accomplish that, we must wake up from our entertainment, comfort-oriented mentality and go back to talking about being God's holy people with all that such holiness involves. But we must do more than simply talk. We must teach holiness, practice holiness, and discipline those who refuse the holy conduct to which God has called us. Remember that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness, and that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Partaking in God's holiness should be the primary aim of each of our lives. 
and we must recognize the essential role of discipline in that sanctification process. God disciplines us for our good. We must discipline ourselves for our good, and we must discipline one another for the good of everyone in the body and for the glory of God. This is something that must involve God in every step. We're we're not holding each other to my standard of living or to yours or to the church's. But if we are living and acting as the church as we should, we are doing our very best to emulate what God expects of his bride. We are calling each other to the calling of God to be holy as as he is holy Um, and working patiently um, and at times uh, very intentionally. um, at always very intentionally to um, succeed in, in that aim. Uh, let's talk more about this on Wednesday. Thank you guys. Thank you.